Hello, my name is Taylor Marsh, and welcome to Sacred to Psychic. I'm a thriller writer. My women characters live where there are few safe spaces. I delve in the hidden spaces in the mind, surfing dark shadows. These are themes of disruption, especially when sacred outreach taps psychic portals. This is my playground. Here we go. So how's the meditation coming? <laughs> I was having a really weird day recently, and I stopped in my tracks and tried to uh, go back on how I started my day. And I recalled that I was, I, for some reason, I was uh, awakened in a start, and some things happened around the house, as they often do. And my meditation, I didn't start my day with a meditation, with my usual meditation. When I say usual, I'm going back decades now. And I, I thought to myself, this is the reason this day has been so odd. Just not, um, not flow, let's just say that, not flowing. And I found myself getting on social media and reading things that were just irritating me. And I started laughing at myself. I said, you know, it's interesting. You're going to now go over to YouTube and get some calming message. <laughs> because as a creative master, your own message, you're not listening to. So obviously, you need to hear it from somebody else. And it is something that I've noticed in, in, the, in really talented people who have hundreds of thousands of subscribers over on YouTube is the really good ones, they will all admit that their own best advice they sometimes forget about because their own life goes haywire. It happens all the time. But the minute you get back on the path and you say, okay, what is my, what is my focus today? First off, I need to work out, okay? I, can't, I, I shouldn't go to the gym. And so what do I do? For someone like me, this is, this is very easy because I do a lot of working out on my, on my own, in my own in my own house, in our house, and wherever we're renting. We are renters, yes. I am, he is a blue-collar guy, and I am an artist. <laughs> and there's more to describe, but you can also read my books and find that out. But it is, it is, a, it is a very big challenge to find something that you love. For me, because I used to be a professional dancer, it's really easy to make the switch. For a lot of people, it isn't. Do you even have a place to walk outside? There, I've spent a lot, half my life, in, in crowded cities, and it's tough. And if you, especially if you have an underlying illness, you just don't, you just don't want to risk it. And I'm, I'm very fortunate, uh, as old as I am, to not have underlying illnesses, except, of course, something that I, I, I haven't talked about yet, which is really great. It used to be one of the biggest parts of my life, and it was, uh, I used to be an incredible migraine sufferer, and it was epic. I, when I was in my teens, I was uh, pretty, pretty much addicted to codeine to, for the pain, which doesn't help the pain. It just makes you wacky and need more codeine. It was a nasty, nasty um, experience. 
but it it is really it's it's very interesting to just stop yourself and it happens to everyone uh even the best of us uh meaning the most practiced not the best as in <laughs> best but are the most practiced and the most experienced and older who have been doing this for a long time we have moments too, especially when our loved ones might be in uh, in a in a situation that makes you nervous or is away. Uh, that that kind of thing really plays on your on your on your head. And every once in a while, you ha- you really would be advised to take a few moments and do a meditation. You need to unplug for this. You need to be somewhere safe. Uh, if you have children. There might, I don't have an answer for you because the kind of meditation I'm talking about really does require a tranquil, tranquil environment. So you might have to do it when they're not around or when they're sleeping or at dance class or whatever. But you really, you need to unplug. And then it just starts with noticing the tension in your body. If your jaw, your back, your knees, are you sitting on your foot? You know, get in a really comfortable position. And notice your breath. Then you, you know, take time with this. Notice the thoughts. They're probably cyclical. It's probably part of the tape that you play in your head every day. Notice those thoughts. Don't judge. Don't say anything. Just push them aside. You can can even make a, when I was first beginning, I I had a closet I put it in. (laughs) But I had to have more than one closet because I had so many things to put (laughs) behind it. To just quiet my mind. And then you need to notice your breathing. You know, easy breath. If the silence bugs you or if your own energy is vibrating in, in, a, in a static way that just is making you nervous, you may benefit from music. And don't worry about that. You can still, you can still hear your instincts through Ariana Grande or Halsey or Diana Krall or... Rihanna, whoever your 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 jam is, uh, you can you can still you can still hear your your instincts. And the thing is, it'll distract the the music will make you feel better, and and it will distract you from your thoughts. Because what you really want to do is get away from the tape in your head. You need to have a gap of space in your life where you have quiet, and it, it would behoove you to have it every day. This is where you find out really where you are in life because if you cannot quiet your mind and if you can't push your thoughts away or with music or something and have five minutes, that's it. And, and it may start with two and you just say, I need music after two. That's it. Don't put restriction, but just try to distract your mind that's that may be all you need to do at first from what is stressing you out just five minutes and then at the end of it and I haven't said this yet but yet but I'm hoping that you're googling uh yo you know uh, meditation Wayne Dyer there's a million people there's a lot of people on the web but then at the end of your meditation say what you're grateful for today don't pray. I'm not asking you to go out to God and ask him for something. You have to you have to figure out from your instincts what to attract to you. That's how you do this. 
But it starts from a place of gratitude. And I remember when uh, I've had so many rough times. Uh, The present isn't real smooth either for any of us. And it is so important to connect to what what you're grateful for. And it can be as simple as your pet. Find different things to be grateful and build on those things because the law of attraction works in a works through a grateful mindset an open mindset a calm mindset now that doesn't mean you're calm all the time but i'm just i'm meaning in a 5 minute space you have a moment of calm and this is what you have to you have to work towards besides the breathing and all this you have to come to a place of gratitude it could be about your talent it could be about uh, the cop car that didn't see you speed through that red light because that would have been a disaster for you for X, Y, Z reasons. There can be a lot of things. It should be tangible to you that really adds to your life. It's important. This, this space of gratitude is, is part of this meditation platform from which you will try... And then you will actually begin listening to your instincts. You will hear them eventually. And you will ask questions and your truth will come up. And it may not be parallel to the way you're living. Uh, I lived in very uncomfortable spots and spaces before I could get out and uh, be in a place that was really creative and I had the support of the people around me. It took a long time, but it can be done. And meditation is a place to start. It's, it's just, it's a beginning. That's all I can tell you. And it's, it's a great place to start. Now, last week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get through this, the rest of this article. This is uh, the article. I have to reach over here and get the title. I forgot it. Okay, The World's Most Dangerous Book by Alan W. Watts. Uh, There's a link on the site, on my site, taylormarsh.com. And uh, I'm going to read the next half of this article that was published in uh, Playboy. Uh, Mr. Watts died uh, in 1973, so this is uh, Echoes from the 20th Century from a Philosopher. And here we go. Uh, The last paragraph uh, I left off, I'm going to just give you a couple of lines because it is so important. Uh, The Bible is a dangerous book, though by no means an evil one. It depends largely on how you read it, with what prejudices, and with what intellectual background. It goes on, um, and the end of this par- this paragraph that I, I finished off with last podcast is, the biblical prophets were not so much predictors as social commentators. I am not in the position of those liberal Christians who reject fundamentalism, but must still insist that Jesus was the one and only incarnation of God, or at least the most perfect human being. No one is intellectually free who feels that he cannot and must not disagree with Jesus and is therefore forced into the dishonest practice of wangling the words of the Gospels to fit his own opinions. 
There is not a scrap of evidence that Jesus was familiar with any other religious tradition than that of the Hebrew scriptures or that he knew anything of the civilizations of India, China, or Peru. Under these circumstances, he was forced with the faced, sorry, he was faced with the virtually impossible problem of expressing, expressing himself in the peculiar religious language and imagery of his local culture. For it is obvious to any student of the psychology of religion that what he needed to express was the relatively common change of consciousness known as mystical experience, the vivid and overwhelming sensation that your own being is one with the eternal and ultimate reality. But it was as hard for Jesus to say this as it still is for a native of the American Bible Belt. It implies the blasphemous, subversive, and lunatic claim to be identical with the all-knowing and all-ruling monarch of the world, its Pharaoh or Cyrus. Jesus would have had no trouble in India, for this experience is the foundation of Hinduism, and the Hindus recognize many people in both ancient and modern times as embodiments of the divine, or sons of God, but not, of course, of the kind of God represented by Jehovah. Buddhists, likewise, teach that anyone can, and finally will, become a Buddha, an enlightened one, in the same way as the historic Gautama. If the Gospel of St. John, in particular, is to be believed, Jesus emphatically identified himself with the Godhead, considering such phrases as, quote, I and the Father or, are one, or, quote, He who has seen me has seen the Father, or, quote, Before Abraham was, I am, or, quote, unquote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But this was not an exclusive claim for himself as the man Jesus, for at John 10.31, just after he has said, I and the Father are one, the crowd picks up rocks to stone him to death. He protests, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, We do not stone you for a good work, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. And here it comes. Jesus answered them, quote, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods, quoting Psalm 82? If he, i.e. God, called those to whom he gave his word gods, and you can't contradict the scriptures— how can you say of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you blaspheme, end quote. Because I said, I am the Son of God, the original Greek says, a son, not the son, end quote. Okay, wow. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to read this. Some of the, some of the, um, the words of this particular um, copy are hard to read, so excuse me for my um, missteps. So going on, Alan Watts. In other words, the gospel or quote-unquote good news that Jesus was trying to convey, despite the limitations of his tradition, was that we are all sons of God. 
When he uses the term I am, as in, quote unquote, before Abraham was I am, end quote, or me, as in, quote unquote, no one comes to the Father but by me, he is intending to use them in the same way as Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita. He who sees me everywhere and sees all in me, I am not lost to him, nor is he lost in me. The yogi who, established in oneness, worships me, abiding in all beings, lives in me, whatever be his outward life. <laughs> and by this quote-unquote me, Krishna means the Atman that is at once the basic self in us and in the universe. Okay, going on. For Jesus was presumably trying to say that our consciousness is the divine spirit, quote, unquote, the light which enlightens everyone who comes into the world, end quote, and which George Fox, founder of the Quakers, called the inward light. But the church, still bound to the image of God as the king of kings, couldn't accept this gospel. It adopted a religion about Jesus instead of the religion of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. It adopted a religion about Jesus instead of the religion of Jesus. It kicked him upstairs and put him in the privileged and unique position of being the boss's son, so that having this unique advantage, his life and example became useless to everyone else. The individual Christian must not know that his own quote-unquote I am is the one that existed before Abraham. In this way, the church institutionalized and made a virtue of feeling chronic guilt for not being as good as Jesus. It only widened the alienation, the colossal difference that monotheism put between man and God. When I try to explain this to Jesus freaks and other Bible bangers, they invariably reveal, th reveal theological ignorance by saying, quote, but doesn't the Bible say that Jesus was the only begotten son of God? End quote. It doesn't. Not at least according to Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Anglican interpretations. The phrase, quote, only begotten son, end quote, refers not to Jesus the man, but to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who is said to have become incarnate in the man Jesus. Nowhere does the Bible or even the creeds of the church say that Jesus was the only incarnation of God the Son in all time and space. Furthermore, it is not generally known that God the Son is symbolized as both male and female. As Logosophia, the design and the wisdom of God, based on the passage in Proverbs 7-9, where the wisdom of God speaks as a woman. Quote, but then, end quote, they go to argue, quote, doesn't the Bible say that there is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved except the name of Jesus? But what is the name of Jesus? J-E-S-U-S. -S. He goes on. Um, let's see. It is said that every prayer said in name of Jesus will be granted. And obviously, this doesn't mean that, quote unquote, Jesus is a signature on a blank check. It means that prayers will be granted when made in the spirit of Jesus. And that spirit is, again, the second person, person of the Trinity, the eternal God, the Son, 
who could just as well have been incarnate in Krishna, Buddha, Latsu, or it goes on as in Jesus of Nazareth. It is amazing what both the Bible and the church are presumed to teach but don't teach. Listening to fundamentalists, one would suppose that if there are living beings on other planets in this or other galaxies, they must wait for salvation until missionaries from Earth arrive on spaceships bringing the Bible and baptism. But if, quote-unquote, God so loves the world and means it, he will surely send his son to wherever he is needed, and there is no difference in principle between a planet circling Alpha Centauri and peoples as remote from Palestine, A.D. 30, as the Chinese or the Incas. It should be understood that the expression, quote-unquote, son of, means, quote, the son, okay, hold on. It should be understood that the expression son of, he puts it in quotes, means, quote, of the nature of, end quote, as when we call someone a son of a bitch, as when the Bible uses such phrases as sons of Belial, an alien god, or an Arab cusses someone out. And it goes on. Used in this way, son of has nothing to do with maleness or being younger than. Likewise, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Logos Sophia, uh, refers to the basic pattern or design of the universe ever emerging from the inconceivable mystery or the Father as the galaxies shine out of space. This is how the great philosophers of the church have thought about the imagery of the Bible. And as it appears to a modern student of the history and psychology of world religions, call it intellectual snobbery if you will. But although the books of the Bible might have been, quote, plain words for plain people, end quote. In the days of Isaiah and Jesus, an uneducated and uninformed person who reads them today and takes them as the literal word of God will become a blind and confused bigot. Okay. I'm going to break just for a second to, to say... Uh, one of the reasons I am going through this and reading this from this philosopher from the 20th century, born in Britain and uh, lived in the United States and was quite a popular philosopher, uh, he's very brilliant on Eastern philosophy and religions, is because I want to uh, encourage each of you to find your own religion. I started off with meditation Find your own path. That's, for me, religion means path. <laughs> Find your own path to source. You can call it God. I don't care what you call it. There's so many different names. Find your own path. As you see from Mr. Watts here that I'm reading last week and this week, um, some of the things he said, has said, is some of them are hard to get your head around. Some of them make a lot of sense, and some of them would be blasphemous. Can you imagine if a woman pre-1973, uh, in my last podcast, I, I, I may mention that he was a grandfather because he said it in, in, in this piece. Can you imagine if a grandmother came out and said this kind of stuff in the 70s, in the 60s? There is a reason women, especially women, but there are there are, you know, gay men and women. There are 
uh, transgender, the, you name it. There are men that have found that uh, organized religion in the 21st century does not work. It hasn't worked for a long time. And very smart scholars who are male were confused long before I started this podcast or my life began. Of course, not with Alan Watts, but with others. So don't be afraid. If, if you've been attached to a church your whole, life, you, your whole life, you can still be attached to that church. If it gives you peace, if, if, if it was your portal to prayer, to meditation, I, it's, there's, the only thing that matters is that the, the authenticity and the continuity of your life, that is what matters because that is the magnet that attracts the law of attraction that brings in the law of attraction. It's your own authenticity. It's finding that, that voice inside you that's recognizing that maybe you're, you're not a, I don't know, you're not a, a business titan, but you're a chef, whatever it is. I'm going to go back to this now and see if we can finish it off this week. Let us look at this against the background of the fact that all monotheistic religions have been militant, Wherever God has been idolized as the king or boss principle of the world, believers are agog to impose both their religion and their political rulership upon others. Fanatical believers in the Bible, the Quran, and the Torah have fought one another for centuries without realizing that they belong to the same pestiferous club, that they have more in common than they have against one another, and that there is simply no way of deciding which of their quote-unquote unique revelations of God's will is the true one. A committed believer in the Quran trots out the same arguments for his point of view as a Southern Baptist devotee of the Bible and neither can listen to reason because their whole sense of personal security and integrity depends absolutely upon pretending to follow an external authority. The very existence of this authority, as well as the sense of identity of its follower and true believer, requires an excluded class of infidels, heathens, and sin sinners, people whom you can punish and bully so as not to know that you are strong and alive. No argument, no reasoning, no contrary evidence can possibly reach the true believer who, if he is somewhat sophisticated, justifies and even glorifies his invincible stupidity as a, quote, leap of faith, end quote, or, quote, unquote, sacrifice of the intellect, end quote. He quotes the Roman lawyer and theologian Tertullian Credo, and he goes on, I believe because it is absurd, as if Ter Tertullian had said something profound. Such people are, quite literally, idiots, originally a Greek word meaning an individual so isolated that you can't communicate with him. Oddly enough, there are unbelievers who envy them, who wish that they could have the serenity and peace of mind that come from, quote-unquote, knowing beyond doubt that you have the true word of God and are in the right. But this overlooks the fact that those who supposedly have this peace within themselves are outwardly obstreperous and violent, standing in dire need of comforts 
and followers to convince themselves of their continuing validity just as much as they need outsiders to punish. Mindless belief in the literal truth of the Bible and furious zeal to spread the message lead to such widespread follies in the American Bible Belt as playing with poisonous snakes and drinking strychnine to prove the truth of Mark 16, 18, where Jesus is reported to have said, quote, They the faithful shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. As recently as April 1973, well, this is interesting because he, uh, Watt supposedly died in 73, so this was a, <laughs> I don't know about this, this was a late edit. Uh, uh, as recently as April 1973, two men, one a pastor, in Newport, Tennessee, died in convulsions from taking large amounts of strychnine be- before a congregation shouting, quote-unquote, praise God, praise God. So they didn't have enough faith, but such barbarous congregations will go on trying these experiments again and again to test and prove their faith, not realizing that by Christian standards, this is errant spiritual pride. Meanwhile, the government persecutes religious groups that use such relatively harmless herbs as peyote and marijuana for sacraments. What is to be done about the existence of millions of such dangerous people in the world? Obviously, they must not be censored or suppressed by their own methods, even though it is impossible to persuade or argue with them in a reasonable way, it is just possible that they can be wooed and enchanted by more attractive style of religion, which will show them that their unbending quote-unquote faith in their Bibles is simply an inverse expression of doubt and terror, a frantic, frantic whistling in the dark. There have been other images of God than the father monarch, the cosmic mother, the inmost self disguised as all living beings, as in Hinduism, the indefinable Tao, the flow flowing energy of the universe as among the Chinese, or no image at all as with the Buddhists, who are not strictly atheists, but who feel that the ultimate reality cannot be pictured in any way, and what is more, that not picturing it is a positive way of feeling it directly beyond symbols and images. I have called this, quote-unquote, atheism in the name of God a paradoxical and catchy phrase pointing out something missed by learned Protestant theologians who have been talking about, quote-unquote, death of God, theology, and, quote-unquote, religiousless Christianity and asking what the gospel of Christ can be saved if, if life is nothing more than a trip from the maternity ward to the crematorium. It is weird how such sophisticated biblical scholars must go on clinging to Jesus even when rejecting the basic principle of his teaching, the experience that he was God in the flesh, an experience he unknowingly shared with all the great mystics of the world. That's got to be my favorite line in this entire piece. Atheism in the name of God is an abandonment of all religious beliefs, including atheism, which in practice is the stubbornly held idea that the world is a mindless mechanism. 
Atheism in the name of God is giving up the attempt to make sense of the world in terms of any fixed idea or intellectual system. It is becoming again as a child and laying oneself open to reality as it is actually and directly felt, experiencing it without trying to category, categorize, identify, or name it. This can be most easily begun by listening to the world with closed eyes, in the same way that one can listen to music without asking what it says or means. This is actually a turn-on. A, this is actually a turn-on state of consciousness in which the past and future vanish because they cannot be heard, and which there is no audible difference in yourself and what you are hearing. There is simply universe an always present happening in which there is no perceptible difference between self and other or, as in breathing, between what you do and what happens to you. Without losing command of civilized behavior, you have temporarily, quote-unquote, regressed to what Freud called the oceanic feeling of the baby, the feeling that we all lost in learning to make distinctions but that we should have retained as their, as their necessary background, just as there must be empty white paper under this print if you are to read it. When you listen to the world in this way, you have begun to practice what Hindus and Buddhists call meditation, a re-entry to the real world, as distinct from the abstract world of worlds and ideas. I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to redo this when you, okay. Uh, you have begun to practice what Hindus and Buddhists call meditation, a re-entry to the real world as distinct from the abstract world of words and ideas. Sorry about that. If you find that you can't stop naming the various sounds and thinking in words, just listen to yourself doing that as another form of noise, a meaningless murmur like the sound of traffic. I won't argue for this experiment. Just try it and see what happens, because this is the basic act of faith of being unreservedly open and vulnerable to what is true and real. Certainly, this is what Jesus himself must have had in mind in that famous passage in the Sermon on the Mount upon which one will seldom hear anything from a pulpit. Quote, which of you, by thinking, can add a measure to his height? And why are you anxious about clothes? Look at the flowers of the field, how they grow. They neither, neighbor, they neither labor nor spin, and yet I tell you that even Solomon, in all his splendor, was not arrayed like any one of them. So if God so clothes the wild grass, which lives for today and tomorrow, which lives for today and tomorrow is burned, shall he not much more clothe you, faithless ones? Don't be anxious for the future, for the future will take care of itself. Sufficient to the day are its troubles, end quote. Even the most devout Christians can't take this. They feel that such advice was all very well for Jesus, being the boss's son, but this is no wisdom for us, practical and lesser-born mortals. You can, of course, take these words in their allegorical and spiritual sense, which is that you 
Stop clinging in terror to a rigid system of ideas about what will happen to you after you die or as to what exactly are the procedures of the court of heaven whereby the world is supposedly governed. Curiously, both science and mysticism, which might be called religion as experienced rather than religion as written, are based on the experimental attitude of looking directly at what is, of attending to life itself instead of trying to glean it from a book. The scholastic, the the scholastic theologians would not look through Galileo's telescope, and Billy Graham will not, would not, will not experiment with a psychedelic chemical or practice yoga. Two eminent historians of science... Joseph Needham and Lynn White have pointed out the surprising fact that in both Europe and Asia, science arises from mysticism because both the mystic and the scientists are types of people who want to know directly for themselves rather than be told what to believe. And in this sense, they followed the advice of Jesus to become again, quote, as little children, end quote, to look at the world with open, clear, and unprejudiced eyes as if they had never seen it before. It is in this spirit that an astronomer must look at the sky and a yogi must attend to the immediately present moment as when he concentrates on a prolonged sound. Years and years of book study may simply fossilize you into fixed habits of thought so that any perceptive person will know in advance how you will react to any situation or idea. Imagining yourself reliable, you become merely predictable and, alas, boring. Most sermons are tedious. One knows in advance what the preacher is going to say, however dressed up on a fancy language. Going strictly by the book, he will have no original ideas or experiences, for which reason both he and his followers become rigid and easily shocked personalities who cannot swing, wiggle, lilt, or dance. In this connection, it should be noted that the blacks of the South swing and wiggle quite admirably, even in church, but this is because the preacher, starting from the Bible in deference to his white overlords, very soon reverts to the rhythms and incantations of some old-time African religion, and there is no knowing at all what he is going to say. This is perhaps one of the principal roots of conflict between whites and blacks in the American South, that the former go by the book and the latter by the spirit, which, like the wind, as Jesus put it, blows where it wills, and you can't tell where it comes for, from or where it's going. Thus, we reach the seeming paradox that you cannot at once idolize the Bible and embody the spirit of Jesus he twitted the Pharisees as today he would twit the fundamentalists. Quote, you search the scriptures daily, for in them you think you have life. End quote. The religion of Jesus was to trust life, both as he felt it in himself and as he saw it around him. Most of us would feel that this was a ridiculous gamble to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks' foolishness, but come to think of it, 
Is there any real alternative? Basically, no human community can, can exist that is not founded on mutual trust as distinct from law and its enforcement. The alternative to mutual trust, which is indeed a risky gamble, is the security of a police state. Alan Watts wrote a mouthful in this piece. When I first read it, it uh, as you can imagine, I, <laughs> I was rendered uh, giddy, and then uh, I squealed like a little girl, and it was comforting to have an Eastern uh, practitioner uh, of, of philosophy, of Eastern philosophy, I should say, be so blunt on what he, as a privileged white male, thought about this history, 2,000 years of history. It wasn't quite then when he was around, Alan Watts was around. But it sure gave a lot of people pause. And of course, at the time when it was published in Hugh Hefner's Playboy, uh, it was underappreciated by the world. And if there's one thing that Mr. Hefner went, uh, went crazy over, it was, it was religion. And I remember uh, studying, you know, in feminism in the 70s, you study, you know, the pill and pornography and sexual liberation and then no-fault divorce in the 70s. And you really had a platform that really served up Jerry Falwell and Phyllis Schlafly and Phyllis Schlafly and, of course, Rush Limbaugh. These two people came out of Missouri. And Missouri is where I was born and raised. And there is a reason that I um, rebelled from a young, young age because I was in that new generation of females that was going to be very much impacted by the pill in my life and by many Supreme Court cases, uh, not only uh, about how education would go, especially in, in St. Louis and Missouri, but whether a woman is really independent. And it means much different. Uh, it means it m means different things today than it did in in the 1970s, in my opinion. There was no there was no help at all for women in the 1970s, even even with Supreme Court laws and uh, and legal freedoms that uh, healthcare freedoms that we never enjoyed before. It it is it has always been something uh, in our culture that in American culture, that the woman is seen as less independent. And the structure comes out of this, these books, these holy scriptures, that women in particular have, are ostracized if they uh, rebut in any formal setting. It is, it is, it is deadly in in social media world if you care about such things if you have these discussions now it's getting better now but back in those days it was deadly uh 
talking about freedoms and I was told by, you know, elders that uh, the ERA amendment was going to be the end of marriage and that the feminist movement was going to be the end of marriage. Well, I will tell you, the feminist movement certainly put um, strains on a marriage and even more strains on religion, but that's because uh, the bolt-down structure of our American society got so tight that nobody could breathe. And whenever you, whenever you give someone uh, freedom to, to look at life on their own, there's going to be changes to the structure. And we're still living with that. But thank God women have, uh, thank goddess, <laughs> thank source, thank uh, whoever you pray to, that women can now speak out in different ways because of how uh, the church has failed so many people. Now, that doesn't mean that the church, whatever the religion, doesn't do good things uh, in communities. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about uh, the things we bring in our politics, the things we bring in our marriage. This is all being pulled apart. And it's, it's what led me to maybe Mary is a revolutionary too because Jesus, when he saw Mary, there was something, that, that attraction and it wasn't, it was, uh, it was simpatico, another spirit, a person that wasn't his disciples, a different kind of energy coming from a woman who wanted nothing but to serve him, not see what she could get from it. Because, of course, a woman in Christ's era, this is a whole new way of imagining your religion. And the way you pray and the way you meditate. Now, I'm going to finish today with a quote that uh, means everything to me. And it's from someone who is um, just a leading thinker. And uh, his name is Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yes, the universe had a beginning. Yes. The universe continues to evolve. And yes, every one of our body's atoms is traceable to the Big Bang and to the thermonuclear furnace within high-mass stars. We are not simply in the universe. We are part of it. We are born from it. One might even say We've been empowered by the universe to figure itself out, and we've only just begun. We are about to step off when I come back from a brief hiatus to do research. We are about to step into a whole new way of thinking about your creativity, about your daily life, about how you create. I want to thank you for coming this far with me. I do appreciate it. I love hearing from you. I'll see you soon. You've been listening to Sacred to Psychic. I'm Taylor Marsh. You can reach me at www.taylormarsh.com. And remember, 
it's not fate. It's your choices. <laughs> <laughs>